Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. June 21st, 2020, episode 176, It's Alive. Hello one and all, I am Kevin England and this is the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. It's Father's Day, so happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. And I, as a father, have had a great day today. And I'm here capping it off by slipping downstairs to get behind the microphone and have a chat with everyone. It's been a typical June here in 2020. When you talk to beekeepers and they say that, they're almost always talking about what's going on in the beekeeping season from a context. Of course, in real life, with COVID going on, especially New Jersey being somewhat of an epicenter, things are decidedly different this summer. We were supposed to slip away to Florida for a spring visit. And then we had plans to go to EAS in Maine. And later this summer, we were supposed to go to Hawaii on a summer vacation. As you might surmise, all of that is behind us, as we're simply going to be spending our time at home, pretty much like everyone else, I guess. Still trying to figure out if there's some way we could work out semi-isolated summer vacation, but I guess time will tell how that's going to go. Spending time at home, it's been a mixed blessing because it gives you time to become acquainted with all those things you said you were going to do, and it gives you time to dabble in all those things that you wanted to do, but you never had the time. I have to imagine that you all know what I'm talking about. As far as beekeeping goes, I'm having a good season, and I feel like it's been one of the most organized I've had in several years. This whole situation with my gateway hive has taken a little of the mystique out of the early season, but lately I've been having a lot of fun with the bees and making progress for a good season. I'll do my best to update a few of those things as the episode progresses. I think it's a good time to turn and talk about what's going to be presented in this episode. The first topic is about something I have going on early in this season, laying workers. Have you ever had this problem? I'm going to talk about laying workers, drone laying queens, and review the differences in those two things. And some mitigation strategies should you become ensnared in having to deal with these issues. Topic number two, honey recipe, honey fermented garlic. Topic number three, I'm going to give an update to the 2020 queen rearing season and the use of NICO queen rearing devices for cultivating some queens. Take a few minutes to talk about some videos that have been posted and some that are in the works with a follow-up to the video concerning euthanizing one of my hives. There's been some interesting post-euthanization activities, is that a word? And questions and answers. A little exploration on some odds and ends, COVID and beekeeping and a couple other things. My my brain's a little scattered at the moment, so honestly, I don't know what's going to come out. But uh, yeah, first, however, it's the local hive report. The local hive report, I guess I'll open this with uh, 
quick update about how things are going in the bee yard. In the last episode I talked about having to take out one of my hives because of its aggression and the video that I shot about that is just going berserk on YouTube right now but I'm happy to report that the bee yard is spectacular. I can go out there in a t-shirt again I don't even have to wear a veil. I can walk around, the yard is calm, I could work the bees without worrying about being stung. Uh, the bees are not harassing us in the yard. Taking that one hive out solved the entire problem of aggression in the bee yard. There's an odd uh, after effect from that hive. Because early on the strategy was to divide that hive and make it a smaller workforce before going in and trying to mitigate that hive by requeening it. Now, we all know the end of that hive was I attempted to kill the queen but decided the hive was too aggressive to go that strategy for that hive. But it can be said that early in the season, I did divide the workforce. I did a walkaway split on the nasty hive and its soulmates are sitting over there on pad number one. So how did that turn out? It's a really interesting experiment because you had this super massive, incredibly aggressive hive and half the workforce was sitting over there on pad number one. The strategy was, as it is with a nasty hive, do not, um, wait, let me say this differently. I let it requeen itself. Now the queen was coming from genetic material from the nasty queen, but she's going to go out and meet with drones in the neighborhood. And the general consensus is the disposition of the queen, meaning the eggs that she lays and the amount of um, hostility for the bees, they are a byproduct of the drones, mostly. That's not to say the queen doesn't partake in that, but most of the time the temperament of the bees comes from the drones in the neighborhood. I put that hive on that stand and it was nasty. The first two times I inspected it, the bees came out like the other hive, but not as bad. So to be clear, they weren't chasing me around the yard. They were nasty when I opened the hive. Now you might say to yourself, well, that's no good, you can't live with that. You have to remember that the nasty bees were in there when I moved the hive over and made the split. But with a new queen laying and new brood emerging, eventually there'll be attrition and the bees in that hive that were aggressive will fall by the wayside and be replaced by whatever the new queen is producing. And the good news is the last time I went in that hive, I didn't see near the amount of aggression I saw when I first put it over there. So it takes four or five weeks and I'm just about getting there and I have plans for this hive anyway so even if the bees are nasty I have a mitigation strategy and I'll talk about that a little bit later. But the good news is it's good. It looks healthy. It's doing a lot of work. 
one of the things that I did to that hive because of course one of the concerns of the former hive the nasty hive was that those drones could get out into the neighborhood I put a queen excluder underneath the brood box so the drones can't go out of the entrance they have a little hole in the top but as I watch that hive I don't see a lot of drones coming and going they're kind of trapped in there until they meet their demise now this week sometime when it's the fifth week I'm gonna go in that hive and I'm gonna rearrange it as you'll hear me talk about and I'm gonna to look to see where the drone situation is but I basically sequestered those nasty drones from going out in the neighborhood by the way that I set the hive up with a queen excluder if it's not evident whenever you use a queen excluder the queen excluder excludes the queens, but it also excludes the drones. They can't pass through it. So putting the queen excluder between the drones and the front entrance would prevent them from leaving. They're stuck in the box. So the hive is, I think, doing okay. And I'll talk more about its destiny in a few minutes. Pad number two. This was nothing and recently I just established a new nucleus colony is able to get three frames and a queen and I put a feeder in and I'm feeding the hive and I'm happy to say that this is a bee box polystyrene nucleus colony I have to give a special shout out to Doug Potter he sent this over to me at one point he runs bee boxes like my polystyrene hive that I love 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 and he's doing experimentation or has in his operation over winter of nukes with these boxes now the interesting thing about the bee box nucleus bee box being the brand in case that's not evident it's six frames what I liked about it is I have a gallon internal feeder and of course starting a new hive being a uh, a nucleus hive you have to feed it really well it'll hold five frames and a gallon feeder and it's perfect size now it's a little odd because none of my other equipment fits on it like you can't put a regular five frame nuke over it unless you do some sort of adapter but what I like is Doug made this really cool bottom board and then a feeding box that goes on top and I've had this thing and wanted to put it in service and now I have some bees to put in it and I have it out operational in the yard. It's early days, but uh, we'll see how that hive progresses. Pad number three, there's nothing there. This is the pad that had the gateway hive. I guess what I'll do is talk about the gateway hive for a moment. Obviously, when I poured soapy water in to kill all the bees, I then had to go back and clean up the mess. I have to say kudos to Sharon. She really did a lot of work for me there. Uh, I was working, so she had a little time. I went out and collected the hive, brought it in, and she cleaned it all up for me. I will admit, full disclosure, that I didn't clean the hive up right away. I just didn't have time to do it. If I had done that, I think I probably would have made out a lot better. But because I left the bees in there for a little bit and it got hot and yucky, the interior of the hive wasn't in very good shape. Now that seems really wasteful because 
in the end you're going to hear I destroyed all the comb but you have to go back and listen to my episodes earlier this year the objective this year was to cull all my comb out of that hive it's all really super old some of it's marked with frames from 1995 and year 2000 and other stuff so literally I was in the process of putting new foundation in that hive when it turned the corner and there were 10 foundation frames in there and they started to build them out so one of the questions I've been getting is what did you do with the hive literally just pulled each frame out and sprayed it down with the garden hose until it wasn't soapy again all of the new frames that were built out were salvageable I think one of them was not one of them we got wrecked because it had brood in it and the brood went south and I don't want to put that back in so I just cut it out but the rest of the new frames the 2020 foundation frames they smell a little funny but they're clean and we have them sitting out in the yard in a box which is sitting on its short end and letting the air pass through it and they're out in the sun and it should be able to just take the odor out of them dry them out and prep them for putting back in some people will say well that's really weird you're going to try to reuse that comb it had soap all over it we washed it so thoroughly that it didn't bubble anymore because it bubbled quite a bit if you saw the amount of soap I poured through it but the comb is in good shape and you'd be shocked surmised, surprised how good bees are at cleaning up comb like that if it doesn't work we'll cut it up and take it out but I wholly suspect that the comb is going to be fine there's some residual honey stored in some of those that will give back to the bees and in fact as they're sitting out there the bees have found them and they're starting to rob a little bit of it and they could care less about what the comb looks like which is a good sign for reuse pad number four is the eight frame hive I'm feeding this hive it started with an early season split it was off to a slow start the last time I looked at it it had carpets of brood the queen finally got her act together and I know that this hive will have a population explosion very soon so I'm pretty confident that that hive is in good shape going into summer pad number five is the cedar hive cedar because it's made of cedar wood this is the hive that I took early in the spring and had dipped I went to a wax dipping event and I brought this hive what's interesting is now that the bees are in it and it's hot you can kind of feel the waxy coating on the outside and the front of the bottom box turn really pale I'm not sure what that's about, why it looks different than the one sitting above it, which got the exact same treatment. But the entire woodenware, the bottom board, the hive bodies, and the roof all got wax dipped. And I think the hive looks really good, except for that blush on the front. This hive is the same as the 8-frame. It started with a split really early in the spring. It was slow to take off, and now the population is building. One of the things I did with this hive is swap the hive stand out. 
I made a modification to the PVC hive stands that I used. My PVC hive stands from the front of the hive, the bars go underneath in the same direction as the front entrance. I created a new hive stand where the rails run front to back and the reason being is I want to be able to put my broodminder scale on that. So I made two new hive stands, different direction, the rails run in an opposite plane and I'm able to set the hive stand down and put the broodminder scales on it. As you might surmise, doing a lot of surmising tonight, uh, I have my broodminder hub working. That was another objective and this is one of those things I was talking about from the COVID. You get these things that you want to do and you finally find time to do it. I have a hub which used to be called I think the broodminder cell and the way mine works is it works off of Wi-Fi and it had problems with Wi-Fi in the house but I went through the house in the spring and redid all the Wi-Fi and now the signal is strong enough from the edge of the house to barely get to the broodminder hub. The broodminder hub takes Bluetooth readings from the broodminder sensors sitting in the box. I have a scale and two sensors in the cedar hive and then it through Wi-Fi uploads it seamlessly to the cloud. And you can go to my website on the home page and look and there's a link that'll let you see the data being reported real time. Now what I noticed uh, looking at it today is I tested the batteries that I put in the broodminder cells before I put them in there but it looks like the battery is not good for some reason in the top broodminder temperature sensor so I have to replace that and I'll probably get to that sometime this week. I also have another broodminder scale and some additional sensors and plan to get them out and deployed. I'm going to put those in the polystyrene hive but right now the polystyrene hive is stacked high with a couple honey boxes so I'll have to wait till they come off and then when I get to my summertime activities of doing treatments and stuff measuring, monitoring and doing treatments if warranted I'll put those in. That's probably a little too much information. Pad number six, <laughs> Lane's Hive. Oh, this, uh, this is just an incredible story, this hive. It started with a swarm early in the season. I put it in the Lane's Nuke that I have. I was able to trade a nucleus colony early in the year that I made for this Lane's box and since that time frame, I think it was April 30th, they've built almost to the other end. I think there's two frames of the 16 left that needs to be built out and one of them is halfway down. I am thrilled to death with how amazing the Lions Hive has done. One of the things I have to do for that, and this is this week or next week's activity, is to monitor the mites and check and see. Now I have to figure out what to do with how do I treat that hive since it's not conventional. I don't have a good track record of putting say Formic Pro or whatever into hives that are not Langstroth and 
causing detrimental effects, so I got to think that one through. Pad number seven is the polystyrene hive. This thing is a beast. This queen is just a champion. It's made two mediums full of honey, and then I put two more mediums full of honey. They're right on the cusp of being capped. I've already harvested two and two more are on the brink. And I took one of the harvested boxes and put it back for the bees to clean up. I wouldn't be surprised if I went in there and found that they're starting to fill that one too. It's been a phenomenal spring. And this hive single-handedly will give me whatever honey I need for this season. Pad number eight is a nucleus with a secret surprise. You can go watch a video of what I'm going to describe. Last year I built a nucleus box, homemade one, with a false floor. It has space for two conventional Langstroth frames and then it has space for three triangle shaped top bar frames. This is where you put a frame in that has no sidebars and they build right down foundationless. I went in to see how the bees were doing. It took a while to get this nuke up and running, but once it got up and running it built a comb out in spectacular fashion. I checked it earlier and it had started to build these and then I shot a video just a little while back of pulling the frame and it looks spectacular. It almost looks like it got built in my top bar hive. I have a template for my top bar that shows me the dimension of the angles and everything and that's what I use to pattern this and, it, and I'm positive that these frames that the bees are building out will drop right in and I can get my top bar started. So I started to think about how would I do this. I really need to get a bunch of frames built out in order to populate the top bar through the rest of the year and the nectar flow is about to come to an end in late June, early July. That's not a good time to try and build a hive like the Lands Hive uh, from end to end. My best bet is to leave it in this nuke and let the nuke keep building me frames. So what I decided to do is went out to the workshop and I pulled out a nuke box, another homemade one, and I made a second box with a false floor. And then I set the hive up to see if I can get them to do the magic one more time. If you picture the stack, on the bottom board is a conventional five frame nuke with the colony in it, and it's full, wall to wall. The second box had two wall to wall conventional Langstroth and then three fully built out, fully utilized top bar frames. I put a new box, third one, on top. I pulled one of the conventionals from the second box up and I put a drawn comb frame in its place. And I pulled the middle top bar built out comb and I brought that up into the top box. So now what I have is the second box is position one fully drawn, position two capped, not capped, uh, drawn comb but empty, position three full top bar style, 
position 4 is empty, position 5 is full top bar. So in that second box, when they build that frame down, it will be, be between two frames that are already built out. Now in the next box on the top of the stack, that one has a drone comb frame. That's what I put in the first position. Then in the second position, I pull the frame up that was fully drawn. The reason is, is I want fully drawn operational comb up there in that second position. Then I have a open frame for top bar, then a full frame with the comb hanging down. So the gap for them to build that top bar has one full frame on one side, one full on the other. And then the last frame, which is frame number five in the top box, has the outer wall. So. I'm feeding that hive every day. I'm giving it a quart. They're taking it down and they're just going crazy. And at the entrance, you can see the bees flying 100%. They look great. So I am really optimistic that they're going to build that. Net net, what I'm going to end up with is six full frames to take and drop into my top bar. And I could keep the nuke going while feeding the top bar and hoping that they'll build even more frames in there. And I'm the plan is to get that all the way through the season and have an operational top bar to go into winter. I'll talk about where you can see a video a little later on that, but I'm really happy with the way that worked. have to give credit to somebody at EAS. I saw the design of the false floor thing in, I think, the contest for innovative designs and borrowed the idea and it looked great. Last hive to talk about on my property is the Waray hive. Sad story. Put a nice swarm in there, but they didn't have a queen. Now what they have is laying workers. Have a reasonable workforce, but no queen. And laying workers. And I think, I'm hoping, that the hive will hold on long enough for the possibility that while I'm rearing queens, I'll have one to put in there. But I'm not highly optimistic that that hive is going to make it. Uh, we'll see. That's a, that's a watch for sure. And the last one I want to talk about is Keith's hive, my twin brother. Uh, we caught a swarm earlier this year in Princeton, brought it over there. Last time I visited, the bottom box was full from wall to wall. And we put on a full foundation brood box on top and I checked it yesterday and it's amazing I can't believe it they built the entire thing out in like a week and a half 10 frames solid we went and did the inspection and they're the nicest bees as could be and the box is totally full so this week the plan is to bring him a medium of all foundation and let them start working on that and that colony is doing great. It's been a good spring for that one. That reminds me of the colony that's in the polystyrene hive. They're just a, a beast. They're doing great. Holy cow, that was almost like a 20-minute plus local hive report. But there's a lot going on. And my next objectives are to get in my hives, do my mite checks, do whatever treatments are required if that's what's called for, 
and ultimately what I'm going to do is go back to pad number one and with the queens I'm rearing I'm going to split that hive up. I'm going to split it into a bunch of different nukes and now that the summer solstice is over which was June 20th by the way this is the time to put your queens in that you plan to overwinter if you're of that belief and then they'll come out super strong in the spring and that's what the game plan is this year I think I'm gonna have 20 plus frames out of that hive to split up into three frame nukes to start and then just keep building them out until I get them to 10 frame nukes five over five and build nuke condos so I'm pretty excited about the way that's progressing It's a good thing I went in order because I don't know how I would have kept track of all that. Local hive report, check. All done. Let's go to topic number one. Topic number one, I call this one All Boys. For this topic, I'm going to discuss two similar conditions that you'll find in a hive, but they're not the same origin. Sharon and I went out to Clinton, New Jersey earlier this spring to hive a swarm. And I was super excited to put it in my Ware hive and get it going again. As you just heard in the local hive report, it's not doing well. And it's really questionable as if as to if I can resurrect it in time. Now the other day I went over to see Bob Kloss as we're doing queen rearing, and he showed me a hive that was a drone layer. His situation was different from my Ware, which is having a laying worker problem. So what is the difference of these two conditions and how can you tell which one you have when diagnosing? Let's go ahead and talk about the biology of these two conditions. We'll start with the problem that has its own origin with the queen, drone layer. We're probably all familiar that a queen takes a mating flight or several as it may be, early in her life and returns with all of the reproductive fertilization materials from drones she's ever going to have. Her quote-unquote lifetime supply of drone supplied sperm is collected in a specialized anatomical feature unique to queens only called the spermatheca. Normally some life event prevents the troublesome situation we are going to talk about from happening. Could be that she's going to fly off in a swarm, or she is superseded for one reason or another. But usually one condition she does not get to very often is ending up with no sperm for egg fertilization. Somehow the colony has measures to detect that and they typically replace her. Now that being said, it does happen when the timing or some other circumstances cause this condition to occur. Perhaps she ran out of mating material during the winter at a time when she was not in a position to raise a daughter to be replaced. Maybe she was a queen that you purchased that was not reared properly mated properly is a better way to say that 
And then maybe she just didn't mate well when she left the hive in the first place. Whatever the cause, the condition of the drone laying occurs when she no longer has the materials required to fertilize the eggs to be females. When this occurs, you may not be privy to what's going on. Beekeepers often report that their hive has become listless, there's an abundance of drones in the makeup of the bees, and a couple other things. In short order, it becomes more evident, and at certain times of the year, it becomes downright noticeable because you would not anticipate the queen to be building all of these drones. Think about it. Why would a queen produce drones going into winter? That's not going to happen. Kevin Mullen. I've seen that, by the way, and said to myself, hmm, it's September. Why are all these drones in the hive? You should kind of have that mental thing locked in the back of your head. If you ever see that, you know your, your queen's running out of, out of gas. Tough to find a queen in September, but better to recognize it then and take care of it. End of Kevin moment. Most of the times you can sense through observation that a hive is languishing. There are other times through proper inspection that you can pick up on anomalies that unlock the clues. So what is it you might pick up on? Now the colony is going to stay together because they have a laying queen. She is laying. But predominantly you're going to start seeing more and more drones both in the brood patterns and in the hive itself. You're going to see funny looking worker brood. You're going to look at it and realize that it looks a little off. It takes 21 days for a worker to emerge and that means if you have a drone layer within three weeks you're going to see the end of workers and it's going to take a little longer for some of the new bees to come out because they're not 21 days anymore the queen's not laying workers. What you'll end up seeing is bullet brood. Now I have to explain this and it's funny the first season I kept bees I saw this and didn't know what it was and lost the hive as a result because the queen was not mated well and there were no bees to make it through the winter and I'll never forget it. If you think about a drone, drone goes in drone comb. It's a bigger cell. Drones are bigger of course than workers. But the queen will lay an egg, assuming she's fertilizing it for a worker, and it ends up being a drone, and it's growing in the smaller cell. There's no space for it, so when they cap it, it's sticking out of the top of the cell, and you see a little dome. When you look at it, you say to yourself, that's a funny looking cell. And it tends to be sometimes haphazard. More on that in a minute. The other side of this is, eventually, if you're not paying attention, those drones come out. And you start seeing these little teeny tiny drones running around. They're almost the size of a worker bee. The reason you know is you look and you see the drone eyes, but you say, that's strange. That drone is really small. It's because they're being raised in worker cells. And they will only grow as big as a big worker. Now, one thing about the way the queen works is she's the queen. She's going to do what she always does. How does a queen lay? She lays 
here, there, here, there, here, there, but she lays in tight concentric circles. You see brood pattern that goes from the center out. She still does that. So you're going to find these bullet cells in the worker comb all clumped together. That's really important that you pay attention that that's the way it works. The queen, thinking she's laying workers but she's not contributing any sperm, is putting drones in the same way. So you'll see brood patterns of bullet drones. Eventually, if you're not paying attention or you haven't done an inspection, you don't have a reason, you're going to open your hive and in the top of the hive where the drones tend to hang out when they're not doing much, you're going to see drones, drones, and more drones. Sometimes a queen runs out of gas at the end of a long winter stretch and you, the beekeeper, start going in your hive and you see a lot of drones. And you think to yourself, it's a long winter stretch. Spring is coming. Dang, this queen is ready to get going. She sure is laying a lot of drones. You close up the box and you dream of spring. Fact of the matter is the queen's going south. She's run out of gas over the winter and she's shooting blanks. Now the good news is if this happens to you early in the spring, queens are right around the corner. And if you can get the hive to hang on long enough, you could typically source a queen. But that's a telltale sign of spring dwindle. When you start seeing the colony go small, not a lot of workers, and you start to see a huge plethora of drones, some odd shaped in the springtime. Drone layer is a queen thing. Queen is laying eggs and they're turning into drones. Let's flip the script and talk about a laying worker. This is a more drastic problem for you. And the cascade of events is caused by some sort of damaged condition where there's no biological way to recover. And that's an important fact that tells you why laying worker is a more difficult problem. In nature, these hives die, but under a beekeeper's watch, it is possible to intervene and stage a recovery if you catch it in time. So nature is built a fail-safe in a colony for those times when something happens to a queen. Let's suppose something occurs where the queen is no longer present in the colony. We could speculate a lot of reasons, killed by an intruder, killed by a beekeeper, killed by the colony for some biological reason. Maybe two queens came out and fought and both of them stung each other and now there's no queen. All manner of things can occur, but in the end, the result is there is no one around to lay a fertilized egg. The failsafe that nature has provided is bees can go and pick an egg that emerges into a larva and make a queen out of it. We all know the story about feeding royal jelly and royal actin and other parts that convert a normal worker to a queen. And all will be right in the world once that queen is in place. Sometimes, however, that queen doesn't make it to fruition. Maybe the queen came out and she went to go try to get mated and got picked off by a bird. Hey, Kevin moment. <laughs> Catbirds, they're the bane of my existence. 
I watch them every day sitting next to the hive and they just fly out and they're picking off the bees. And I see it at Bob Claus's too. They're hiding in his trees. The other day they were literally on the ground just smorgasbording away on, on his bees that were landed on the ground. It's unbelievable how aggressive the catbirds are eating our bees this year here. Do you have this problem? I don't know how to solve it, honestly. Bob Kloss was talking about his inability to have queens get mated because the catbirds keep eating them. And he's taking his hive somewhere where there's no woods in open fields so that he can get them mated. What a problem to have, end of Kevin moment. So in the situation where the original queen dies, picking up where I left off, hopefully you can have a new queen, but if you have no new queen and the original queen wasn't laying eggs or there is nothing source material, you end up with no ability to raise a new queen. They've had no queen in residence and they're doomed. So this puts a worker bee in a funny position because they're girls after all and they do have some of the equipment God gave them to lay eggs. The problem is they cannot go out and get mated physically impossible and even if they did know about a drone congregation area they have no spermatheca. They don't have the anatomy. So the short answer is they are incapable of producing fertilized eggs but they can lay eggs. Now this calls for a Kevin moment. Nature does have some unique anomalies in the animal kingdom and it could be noted that, and I think I've talked about this on one of the shows before, there's this thing called Thelitoki. It's a particular form of parthenogenesis which is development of a female individual which occurs from an unfertilized egg. Yeah, it's the source of the problems in Jurassic Park, if you've watched the movie. Parthenogenesis, it's defined as a natural form of reproduction in which growth and development of embryos occur without fertilization. Now, it's documented that Thelitoki reproduction occurs in female workers of the Cape Bee, Apis mellifera capensis. It can also be said that it's found in some other races as well, but at a very low frequency. So the good news is never say never, you never know. I'm pretty confident though, that Apis mellifera, mellifera, our European bees here, are not gonna solve the problem for you. I haven't seen that happen yet. Now, the takeaway here, and I'm not suggesting that our Apis mellifera bees are capable of this, but life does find a way. Dr. Ian McCallum, Jurassic Park. End of Kevin moment. Back to laying workers. In a normal operating colony, the queen and the brood produce a chemical signal called a pheromone, which is a trigger that entices the workers not to worry about laying eggs. It shuts them down. But when the queen's not operational or not there, and she's not producing brood, that pheromone chemical signal is not present, and laying workers are workers that convert over and develop the ability to lay eggs, and then they start doing it in spades.
There's a consideration here that can't be lost. A lot of times you'll hear the term laying worker, but it's workers with an S, plural. A lot of bees turn into laying workers. And the problem is, is there's no way where you just say, mm, you gotta go, pick the one bee out, and everything's back to normal with the colony. You have a whole fleet of bees, all workers, laying eggs all over the place, and it becomes a real mess. Now, we beekeepers may not be in the know and be typically cognizant of the absence of the queen, unless we happen to kill her somehow. Usually, we take action on that. So what typically happens is we get in, we do an inspection, and we find things amiss. Now, how do you actually recognize a colony of laying workers? There's some telltale signs, and they are distinctly different from the drone laying signs that I talked about earlier. Now, workers are not practiced at laying eggs. When they achieve this state where they want to lay eggs, you will see multiple eggs in a cell. Now, queen can do that, but laying workers, it, it's grossly overstated. There's eggs all over the place. The worker's abdomen is not as long as the queen's, and as such, they have a hard time reaching the floor of the cell. So another telltale sign that you look for is that the eggs will be deposited in the cell, but they'll be stuck to the side, they'll be stuck to the side, there'll be some haphazard across the bottom. A queen will lay an egg direct in the center of the cell and it'll be standing upright. A lot of time the worker, they're laying down or they're crisscross. The other thing that you find is that workers don't like workers laying eggs. They realize something's wrong with it and they start to cannibalize the eggs. So not only will you see a, a cell with a large number of eggs in the bottom, but a lot of them look like they're chewed or half digested or so on. Workers are not practiced at following patterns. They'll lay an egg wherever they are. And this is a very key distinction is the worker pattern is all over the place and if it gets capped and made in it's shotgun like it's haphazard on the face of the cone in the laying worker scenario it's haphazard for a drone laying queen it's usually tight and compact that's how you can tell the difference between the two now it might be one bee doing this, but chances are by the time you get in and discover this, there's multiple bees laying eggs all over the place. So now that you have some of the key tips to figure out which you have, if you have, and when you have, how do you do recovery? Let's talk about that. Inherently, a drone layer queen is the easier situation to fix. Think about it. It's a matter of simply requeening re the hive. Now this is an it depends thing because you have to take into consideration what time of the year is, whether you can get queens. Um, it's early in the spring, no problem. If it's happening later in the fall and there's no queens available, no capped queen cells in your hives, things like that, then you got to work a little harder at it.
you also have to consider how many drones are available. Now if you could make a phone call at any given point or you happen to have some queens banked, you could just buy a mated queen and insert it into the high fi requeening and you'll be back in business in short order. If it's the time of year where you have capped queen cells, then you could stick one of those in there. You'd have to remove the queen and make the hive hopelessly queenless for them to accept it. And there's other opportunities where you could remove the queen and try to get them to raise their own. The short answer is a drone laying queen is simply requeen this the hive and you'll be good to go. Now the laying worker problem, this one's a little bit different. In this instance, the crux of the problem is you do not have one problem, as we keep saying, you have a plethora of problems. Namely, each of the workers that's trying to emulate a queen, when they're doing that, they're giving off some sort of chemical scent that makes the hive feel like it has a queen. And if you happen to try and put a queen in that hive to rectify the situation, chances are it'll be rejected and they'll actually kill it. This makes it a lot more difficult to try and fix the situation. And there are a few methods to try and correct that. And all of them, I guess, a bit questionable as to whether you'll have success and whether or not you can live with the inherent risk of doing some of these. So let's go through that. The most common wisdom I have heard over and over again has a really odd slant to it if you're a beekeeper. The most common wisdom that you'll hear about this, you have to consider who's laying the eggs. It's the nurse bees. They're young, they haven't been out foraging, and you need to get rid of them. They gotta go. So you take the hive, all of its population, out 100 yards far away, and you shake the bees out on the ground. Every one of them, shake them out on the ground matter you shake them in the grass, shake them on a cloth, whatever the case may be. The bees causing the problem that are confused are workers, nurse bees, young ones. They've never been out of the hive. If you shake them out in the grass a couple hundred yards away, they don't know how to be out of the hive because they haven't oriented yet. But all the worker bees who are out foraging will fly back to the hive. When that occurs, you take your hive and give it a new queen and all of the laying workers they're out in the field somewhere they will not attack and you should be able to get the colony restarted the key to this I guess is trying to find it as early as possible so you have a reasonable workflow to get the hive restarted now reports are it works but sometimes even the bees that were laying workers figure their way back in their hostel and kill your queen. Your mileage may vary on that one. So let's consider another option. Most times this colony is dwindling. Sometimes by the time you get in the hive and the population has dropped so much that it's an iffy proposition to try and recover them. A common wisdom is you have a hive like this, maybe it's synonymous with what I always call a dink, Combine it with another hive. The key is you have to combine this dink with a strong hive. In this case, this is the second alternative. You combine the hive 
which has not been operating properly, with a queen right one, and let them become one. The key here is that you have to put them with a monster hive, a big hive, one that will protect their queen. If you match them with another hive of equal size, it could be possible that they're going to duke it out and they'll get to the queen and kill it and then you'll have two queenless hives. So make sure that you do that and even then it is still possible that these bees you contribute to your other colony will kill that queen. There's another option. This one takes a bit of fortitude but you can use biology to your advantage. Now the short of the problem is they don't have any bees to make a new queen. So you could give them them. You could take a frame of brood in all stages that have eggs, young larvae, give it to this colony, and see if they raise a queen. Now, two things occur. One, they have material to make a queen, and they might just do it. But they might also ignore that. But it brings brood pheromone into the colony. And the brood pheromone may suppress the laying workers and then somewhere along the line you're gaining an advantage. If the first frame didn't work, wait a little bit and go get another one and drop it in. Successive frames of brood material that you can raise a queen will, they say, eventually overwhelm the situation and they will, in time, make a queen. Now, you're bringing a frame that has brood in all station, stages, eggs, larvae, cap brood, and in that you're getting new bees emerging, which become workers, which are nurse bees, and you have brood pheromone, and in time you might even, through attrition, replace those laying workers, and eventually this should all work itself out. So that's kind of cool. You have to have the stick to to try that approach, but that one, I think, in the end, will work. Now, most of the people I know that deal with this situation, sometimes they just shake the bees out and take the hive down. <laughs> That's the last option. All the bees that come out and fly, if they go back and their hive isn't available and you have another hive in the area, they'll try to make their way in. And the workers that were laying workers will probably remain out in the field and you'll wash your hands of the situation. So looking at the score, Bob Kloss had a drone layer and I know he was going to... the funny thing was is, yeah, we went through his hive. I want to say for 45 minutes. We went through his hive from top to bottom, from the inner cover to the floor and could not find a queen. In fact, we did that today with another hive. We went through both boxes. It was a two deep, and we could not find the queen. What we ended up doing was take a spare box, look at a frame, look all the way through, see if we could find the queen. If we didn't find the queen on the frame, we made sure we shook the excess bees so they weren't clumped over top of each other, looked at the frame again, and if we didn't find it, we put it in a spare box. We went through the top box, frame 1 through 10, and did that. 
and took every frame because we never saw the queen and put it in a box. Then what we did was we had that top box sitting on an inner cover. So let me back up a second. We went through the top box, we didn't find it, we set it aside. We went through the bottom box, we didn't find it, we set it aside. We decided we were going to do this again. So we went through the bottom box again, didn't find it, took the inner cover, closed it off, put the box, top box, on top of the inner cover and went through the entire thing and didn't find it. Could not find a queen. Sometimes this happens. This is a joke. Two master beekeepers try to find a queen again. <laughs> right? So we took an empty box and we put it on the hive cover next to us. And we went through the top box. We pulled each frame out. As I said, we looked at the, the frame, tried to find the queen. We shook the excess bees so they weren't thick on the... There's a lot of bees in this box. Into the box below and we put it in the box over to the side. We did that for all 10 frames. Neither one of us found a queen on the frames. Then what we did was look on the inside the box that was sitting on top of the inner cover to see if the queen was on the walls, on the floor. He took the left wall and the front wall. I took the right wall and the back wall and we scanned for a queen and didn't find it. We picked that box up and set it aside. We put another empty box on the hive top and we went through the entire bottom box. Same thing. Each frame out, looked around, tried to find it, shook the excess bees off into the box and we loaded a second box. So now we have all the bees that we shook off in the bottom box. We did the same thing. Both of us looked on the floor. He had the left and the front. I had the right and the back. The queen was on the floor. So it took that level of scrutiny to find this queen. She was just hell-bent on not being discovered. And we were able to pick her out and put her in the cage. In the cage meaning in the queen-rearing device. I'm talking about the Nyko device. But coming back to the drone laying queen that he had. We couldn't find the queen. We looked around and around and around. My speculation was she went down on the floor and he had a robber guard on the front of the hive and I think she scooted in under the robber guard and hidden there and that's why we didn't find her. So I left that queen. <laughs> I left that problem for him. He had to go through it again and I think I have to remember if he talked about that he may have gone through and found the queen, but the key is he can requeen that hive, drone laying queen, but he's got to find the queen. He's got to get her out of there. If he puts a queen in there, it's possible that they will reject her or that the two queens will fight. And what he needs to do is find that drone laying queen because she's still giving off pheromone and make it go away so that the hive is hopelessly queenless so that they'll accept a hive like we talked about earlier. So he's got his issues and I've got mine. That's part of the fun of springtime sometimes I guess. Better now than discovering the problem in September. As to my worry hive I'm at an impasse what to do with it. Trying to fix that hive in late June is akin to installing a swarm 
a small one at that, into a hive at, at late June, and it basically is going to be the beginning of July. By the time the situation is corrected, it's going to be, well, as they say, swarm in May will make hay. A swarm in June is worth a silver spoon, but a swarm in July ain't worth a fly. Now, I kind of bastardized that saying a bit for my own purposes, but <laughs> the point is, is kicking off a build-out of a full-size colony when the nectar flow is starting to dwindle in my area is not the strongest strategy. Now that flies in the face of something I said before about the summer solstice and starting these nukes and so on. I think in this case, the operative chances that I have a bunch of materials to build nukes. I have stored honeycomb that has honey from the winter in it that I'm going to feed these nukes. And I'm putting a young queen and she's going to go to town. The Ware hive has its own frames, different dimensions. So in that case, it's not the same. I can't find resources to contribute to it. It's on its own. It's either going to make it or it's not. I guess we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'll keep reporting on it when I make my final decision. Laying workers, drone laying queen. It's a good way because sometimes people get these things confused. It's a good way to remember it. You have a drone laying queen. That's a great way to remember that. And then you can distinguish between the two. I don't know. This isn't something you deal with all the time. Whether I covered this all in detail or made any mistakes in it. But I think I got it mostly right. And if you have any comments or questions. Kevin at bkcorner.org about this one. My guess is if you've done beekeeping long enough. You've probably come across this. And it's never any fun to deal with. Especially laying workers. Okay, enough on this topic. Let's close it down and move to topic two. Topic number two, call this one, It's Alive. I love the concept of all things honey. And while harvesting honey this year, I started to think through some of the things we might do with this year's harvest. Our son Danny recently introduced us to the Bon Appetit cooking channel on YouTube. And in it, there's an instruction video by Chef Brad Leone on how to make fermented honey garlic. The shtick for Brad's show is that his presentation is lighthearted and jokey, which is entertaining, but when it comes to recipes, I prefer a more food science style approach. I think Good Eats or America's Test Kitchen because those shows give you the insights about the recipe and why they work. In his delivery, Brad alludes that this fermentation is safe to eat while making lighthearted comments to check the pH levels, put a splash of vinegar in it as needed. Okay, I, I think the real message is common sense. It is safe, or they, meaning Bon Appetit, would get sued. But still, if you make or handle a food product wrong, you run the risk of getting sick or even dying of possible food illnesses, and in this case, specifically botulism. 
Now it's not a knock on Brad. In fact, I love the show and the content they produce. And I do trust what he shared was fine. You'll learn why in a moment. But still, I thought it would be interesting to go more into the Alton Brown method of food prep and dig in, learn why it's safe. Hey, don't be surprised. If you listen to the podcast, you know that how is usually not good enough for me. I yearn to know why. Fermented honey garlic. Cutting to the chase, it's really hardly a recipe. Put some bruised cloves of garlic in fresh honey and pay attention to it while it's fermenting. That's it. That's really what you're doing. If it's so simple then, why do I have so much to say about it? Because in truth, there are other relevant informational things, to my way of thinking, that need exploring in me being me. I plan to unpack it in a little more detail. As with anything like this, I'm just a regular Joe. I'm not qualified to give advice on foodborne illness or risk. My intent here is to share what I learned in my research. And as always, I would encourage you to do your own due diligence. So come along on the journey if you wish as I review the botulism aspect, the preparation steps, do's and don'ts, and some other questions that come about storage, handling, extensions, appearance, and so on. I think we need to start with botulism and the risk. In Brad's video, he made a cursory mention about the prospect of botulism. He started right off with it. Then he gave a wave of the hand brush off by saying, if you're worried and you need not be tested with a pH meter, if it's out of range, add a splash of apple cider vinegar. That requires a little more know-how for me. Botulism, food-borne botulism, is a harmful bacteria that can thrive and produce toxins in the food that can make you ill or, at its worst, kill you. The last prospect, it can kill you, is in fact very rare. Still, given the symptoms, nausea, vomiting, abdominal cramping, dry mouth, shortness of breath, and a few other problems that can come your way, well, it's imperative that we give botulism prevention proper consideration, don't you? On the more dangerous side, botulism is a neurotoxin that affects the nerves and paralyzes muscles. In truth, statistics indicate that less than a thousand cases a year are reported in the U.S., and to my way of thinking, they probably have more to do with improper canning techniques of other products. For beekeepers in the know, the botulism bacteria could be confusing when you consider that botulism spores are a concern for honey. One of the first things I hope you learned as a beekeeper is that there's an inherent risk of giving honey to young children under one year of age due to the presence of botulism spores in honey. Botulism spores exist on plants in nature and presumably, I'm speculating, they're brought back by the bees and that's how they end up in your honey. It is these spores that infants cannot process, hence the guidance. So when reviewing the concerns of botulism for fermentation, is it to do with the spore aspect or is it something else? 
The answer is botulism spores are different from foodborne botulism toxins forming during fermentation. Foodborne botulism illnesses result from the ingestion of foods containing the aforementioned preformed toxin as a result of botulism growing in the food. Infant botulism is due to the quote endogenous production of toxin by germinating spores of C. botulinum in the intestine of the infant. End quote. That's from the CDC. The definition of endogenous relates to something happening internally and in this case it's production of botulism problems from the spores being ingested inside the infant. A Kevin moment. Now I suppose that you should still not give the fermented honey, garlic, to infants under one, even though it doesn't contain the spores. But I digress, how many of them probably want to gnaw on a honey-soaked garlic morsel anyway? End of Kevin moment. Let's talk about suitability of garlic fermenting in honey. Of the many things you could pickle or ferment, honey-fermented garlic happens to have several factors that aid in the prevention of botulism forming. Looking at what causes botulism, it would thrive in the following conditions. Fermentation in a high ambient temperature. Fermentation in an environment deficient of oxygen. Fermentation in a low acid environment low acid being defined as a level lower than 4.6 in a reading. Fermentation in a low salt mixture. Fermentation that supplies some sort of protein source. And the last thing you would not want to do is have fermentation that's done in a low sugar environment. Now the good news for us is inherent nature of the product we're making and the handling instructions take care of several of these items. We're going to store the product in a cool, dark place, or in the refrigerator. There is oxygen available to the fermentation because you're opening it up in the instructions of handling. Honey is acidic by nature. There's no salt involved. There's no protein involved. These are things that are probably more common from an instruction on canning and canned goods. And last but not least, honey is, of course, a high sugar environment so there are plenty of microbes for the fermentation to feed on good microbes the key thing we have going for us is raw honey is both acidic and it provides a high sugar environment and the average pH of honey is 3.9 and well below the acidity danger zone of 4.6 considering the role of acidity acidity honey acidity differs on the product as you would imagine all honeys are not the same honey can be in a range of 3.1 to 6.1 is what I've learned but the average is 3.9 as I said before the acidity of any honey is directly related to the floral sources that created it but even better news is that after the fermentation begins the product becomes even more acidic which equates to a low pH and that's just what we're looking for. Net-net for the reasons that we just went through it's generally considered safe.
However, if this didn't convince you, and I always encourage you to uh, trust but verify for yourself, you could test your fermentation. You simply just take a pH reading to ensure the pH is not above 4.6. And alternatively, if you have no way to test, one thing you could do is control your destiny by physically making it more acidic through the addition of ta-da, a splash of cider vinegar. In our rundown we talked about temperature and storage. Almost everyone who posts about this on the internet suggests that you store this at room temperature and it doesn't have to be refrigerated. That seems odd if you're familiar with storing garlic. There's a recommendation to refrigerate chopped garlic in oil from the CDC, but that's a different food altogether because there's no acidic or sugar. Fermentation results in lactic acid, which makes the fermentation safe, and this mixture will continue to ferment for a long period of time. Of course, it's not forever. If you contrast that to the garlic in the oil, as I said, it's not acidic, and it requires refrigeration and consumption by the expiration date. Still, if you want to be ultra conservative, instead of a cool dark place, go ahead and put it in the fridge. I've read somewhere that some who are still paranoid will let it ferment for 30 days on the counter and then after the main fermentation is slowed down, they're going to store it in the chill chest. Now during the course of looking deeper into this, several other points surface that should be of interest if you want to make this product and talk to people about it. They have to do with appearance over time, tips and tricks for success, and you really probably should figure out how long this stuff really lasts. If we talk about appearance, appearance-wise when you look at the photos of various fermentations online they look really appealing. Golden elixir with candied little garlic pearls floating. In reality the garlic it might turn out decidedly different. Sometimes the garlic gets funky and you just need to embrace it. It's perfectly normal for the garlic to turn blue-green or green or darkish. This is not the garlic going bad. So many people ask, should I throw it out, the garlic turn green? No. The fact is there's a chemical reaction in the fermentation of garlic that often causes it to change appearance. And it might seem odd to some to consume blue-green garlic, but it doesn't affect the flavor and it's totally safe to eat. I wonder if it's synonymous with something like eating blue cheese, right? You gotta use the right ingredients when you're making this. In this global economy our food comes from all corners of the world. And it's really not unusual to see produce in big chain stores like garlic, for example, that comes from China or other places. If you think of this from the fermentation aspect, fermentation works best with fresh ingredients. Using a garlic that was probably grown last summer, and yes, I think that's possible because it's... With the right storage, you know that it's pretty durable and it could be provisioned that way. It's not the right way to go. Make a concerted effort to use garlic that's grown locally and fresh. 
that's going to result in the best outcome and help you avoid problems. And the same can be said about your honey. Sadly, much of the world's honey is suspect for being adulterated, or at best it's super processed through heat and filtration. Fresh, raw honey, it's the only way to go. You could source it from a beekeeper, hopefully you are a beekeeper, and many local farmer markets. You want to look at the origin on the label and make sure it's not coming from overseas. Crystallization. One more thing about honey. Sometimes crystallization occurs. That's completely normal. Um, crystallized honey is not bad. It's just crystallized. If you find yourself with a jar of honey that has crystallized, making it for this recipe means you probably should submerge it in hot warm water until the crystals melt and the honey is liquid. I wouldn't suggest you put it in the microwave. That's going to kill the microbes and you need the microbes. That's why we're using fresh raw honey to help in the fermentation. But liquefied honey is the way to go for this recipe. Mix in ingredients. As it is with home canning and fermentation, some wish to get creative. I love whenever you see a recipe that someone writes and the first comments are, I made this recipe that I substitute 85 parts of the ingredients and it didn't come out. <laughs> that always cracks me up. Could you mix in other ingredients and go beyond just honey and garlic? The short answer is yes. I would tell you to start there first and then do mix-ins, but you need to be careful. A pretty common mix-in and recipe that you'll find as an alternative, especially because it's a reasonable flavor combination that goes with garlic, is adding fresh ginger root. So apparently it's okay to do this, but you'll see several variations of this ginger garlic honey recipes out there. And this is important. It doesn't mean that you can randomly mix any kind of ingredient. For example, it's known that cinnamon might be considered a pretty good pairing with ginger, garlic, and honey, but there are specific warnings not to use cinnamon in this fermentation because something in the cinnamon inhibits the fermentation and adds risks for botulism. My guidance to this, like I said a moment ago, is you're good to go with honey and garlic. All signs appear that ginger is acceptable, but even with ginger and any other ingredients, I would do some research and only use recipes from reputable sources. How long is it going to last? And you might ask yourself, where is my large automobile? And you might ask yourself, how did I get here? <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Letting the days go by, let the water hold me down. That's a reference to the Talking Head song, Once in a Lifetime, from 1984, the year graduated high school. What I meant to say is, you might ask yourself, how long does this fermentation take? And you might ask yourself, what is the shelf life of this product? Normal guidance is the active fermentation lasts about a month. Once it settles down, 
then it switches to what I'll call passive fermentation. It still results in the creation of protective acids that go on for possibly up to a year. And they say the taste gets better with age, but still I would think consumption by six to eight months to be safe. Although most sites say the shelf life is a year, no longer than a year. I'm not sure if we in the England household be brave enough to test any of these limits. And presuming it's super tasty, we'll have long since consumed our elixir by the time any of these periods are approaching. One thing's clear, if you're holding this for a long time frame, think months old, it would be wise to procure some pH test strips or some sort of pH testing and test it periodically just to make sure it's in the safe pH zone of under 4.6. I have to come back to the actual recipe and I'm going to give you some instructions about how to do it. We actually harvested honey this past weekend and used the honey filtered from the cappings as it was about the right amount to do this. The ingredients, 12 cloves of garlic, it's one big head, one and a half cups raw honey. You need a quart jar. The instructions for assembly, you want a two cup jar, quart jar preferably with a canning lid. You peel the garlic cloves and then bruise them slightly by giving them a sharp wrap with the side of a chef's knife. No need to cut them up or mince them. In fact, whole but bruised is what you want. Now when prepping the garlic, trim off any of the ends, meaning the stem woody end, and cut out any dark spots or blemishes. You don't want any dark, rotten, bruised parts. What you're trying to do is crack the surface of the membranes in the garlic to release allicin. Allicin's the chemical compound that helps with the fermentation. You're going to add your garlic to your jar, which is scrupulously clean, and you're going to pour your liquid honey over it. The honey should in envelop, meaning cover completely the garlic, and you can turn it over or mix it in to assure that the garlic is all coated. That's what you really need to have happen. You want to make sure you leave some headspace in the jar. Don't fill it all the way to the top. The headspace or air gap at the top allows gases to collect. If you forget this step, you're going to have volcano style event in your future. Then you're going to seal the jar and put a label on it with the date it was made and let it sit at room temperature. To care for this thing, yes, it requires a little bit of care. I don't know if you could wait three days because it's like a fun experiment. We've already cracked ours and it's been like every day. But it, at minimum, in three days, come back to it, unscrew it, and remove the lid to let out any accumulated gases from the fermentation. When you do it for the first couple times, you might want to see if you have signs of fermentation through the appearance of any tiny bubbles. That tells you the fermentation process has started. I would suggest you swirl the honey in the jar 
or turn it over and then after you're done close it back up and put it in a conspicuous place so you can gently turn your drawer over every few days or whenever you think about it make sure you keep your drawer in a cool dark place don't store it on the windowsill in full sun in time the honey will change vis viscosity it'll thin out it'll become runny and it's possible that through the fermentation the garlic will give up some moisture and it could release water that's going to sit on top of the honey so while you're taking care of your fermentation give it a little swirl turn it over get that water mixed in it'll combine together at minimum it should turn a few shades darker meaning the garlic and the liquid and you should keep tabs on it for 30 days checking the need to burp it during the active fermentation period which could be 30 days or more by the way if you forget to burp it yeah what did I say you're gonna have a volcano you've been warned there is one thing for the forgetful Freddy you could use a silicone airlock and weights a silicone airlock fermentation lid sometimes called a pickle pipe in fermenting circles this is a cap that has a little nipple on the top with a flat lid and a small hole instead of the silver lining of say a canning jar you put this in and close it down when the pressure builds up it pushes out on that hole and it opens the hole lets the gas out and then when there's no more pressure the silicone comes back together and closes it off it's basically a one-way valve the key to this is it can escape without Mount Vesuvius another thing that's sold in conjunction for fermenting kits is ferment fermentation weights these weights are something that you put in the jar and it sits on top of whatever you're fermenting a lot of times when you're fermenting vegetables they float to the top and they stick out in the air and you want them submerged in the pickling liquid well the same happens here the garlic comes up and is out this is why you rotate it all the time to keep it covered well here you could put this fermentation weight in the jar and it will push down and keep the garlic submerged now what do you do with this stuff you could drink it people use it for cough syrup I don't know that that would be the f most flavorful cough syrup for me but supposedly it's supposed to be very potent for that I think the more appropriate place would be anywhere you would marinate with garlic and honey together maybe mix in a little soy sauce with it when you're making some chicken or brush it on pizza they swear on the internet that a white pizza with this stuff brushed on it is to die for I'm sure you could get creative and think of a zillion different ways to use this and they say that the garlic mellows out and you could just pop it in like candy and it's really good it's almost like cooked garlic but it has a sweetness to it so I have a jar sitting upstairs it's about a week old now and I'm looking forward to see what happens to it 
and so far it's fermenting and it's doing really well. We used fresh garlic and our honey, so I don't see any reason why it shouldn't come out well. And we'll get back to you and tell you how it turned out. Now I verbally relayed the recipe that I wrote out for myself and the tips and tricks, but I would implore you to visit the Bon Appetit website in the show notes. There's a link for the formal recipe. There you can read a food expert's presentation of the recipe and any of the comments from the people who are following those instructions. I also have a link to Brad Makes Fermented Garlic on my show notes. In fact, I wrote a blog post. So if you go there and you look in the category of recipes, you will find this feature written out. I just read it with a lot of links to the Colorado State University Botulism Fact Sheet, Botulism in the United States Handbook, and a couple other resources. www.bk corner episode 176 or look for the blog post called Fermented Honey Garlic. Let's move to the pack of the book, round table number one, I call this one Bubbles. In some places the prospects of finding adequate insects for pollination is taking a catastrophic turn. If you've been around beekeeping enough, you probably somewhere along the line have come across photos of humans in Asia pollinating plants by hand. Sometimes it's the decline of pollinators. Other times it's humans are less expensive to employ than renting out colonies. Whatever the case, it's clear that the world has had its share of trying to solve or find alternatives to employing honeybees and other pollinators to fill the void for crop pollination. Enter in a new novel idea that's being tested, the use of bubbles for pollination. A recent study was published out of Japan in the journal iScience outlining experimentation with giant bubble formulations to carry pollination materials on a pear orchard. Now we've reported in the past that some are experimenting with drones or autonomous insects to do the job. Drones disperse a wide band of materials while autonomous insects attempt to emulate an insect interaction with the plant by flying from plant to plant to plant. It is thought that if they can get this nailed down, bubbles could complement some of the drone approaches being explored. The researchers had to test different formulations and settled on something called Laura Midopropyl, which was said to better facilitate pollen germination and growth. It appears they didn't just figure out a way to transfer the pollen granules, they also worked out how to support germination by optimizing the pH and adding calcium in the delivery along with the seed material. Reports are that with the experimentation they received a 90% success rate when the machine moved through the orchard at 2 meters per second. Now, if I have this right, they're flying a drone which is shooting out bubbles and the bubbles are landing on the plants. I could picture the scene of a vehicle of some sort spraying a plume of bubbles that float up and eventually land all over the trees popping as they go. It's such a brilliant idea. 
I like everything else that it's in its infancy it still needs some work to improve accuracy and in order for it to work during uh, think about it alternative conditions namely wind and rain I start to think about given we just washed out a hive with all the soap if it leaves any residue or if there's some unintended consequences my my thoughts are though that the bubbles are so thin and delicate that it's probably not a problem in time though would it be a problem with all this soap material being out in the environment I don't know all kinds of things to wrestle around still it seems like it could be an inexpensive way to deliver a payload and who knows there might be a future for someone who learns how to blow bubbles for a living in agriculture what kid doesn't dream of that look for a link to the article in the show notes and there'll also be a link to the research paper of the cited study roundtable number two I have to follow up on one comment that just keeps coming back and it's kind of been a very interesting observation in the video of me taking care of the nasty hive people have just lost their mind over the fact that the hive had a pattern it looks like a cow hence the reason I call it the gateway hive over and over again the question comes through does black make bees aggressive the short answer is yes if you're a human being dressed in black wearing black gloves doing something where you have dark clothing on and you're moving around in front of the hive you are highly susceptible to be aggravated by bees they don't like that I can imagine that over time the key thing that insects have somehow figured out how to clue in on is eyeballs that's the number one thing they go after but they also do not like fur odor and dark patterns so many people have seen the aggression of the hive in the video and if you don't know what I'm talking about go to youtube.com slash nwnjba and look up the video euthanization of a dangerous hive there's been so many references to the possibility that the hive paint scheme painted like a Holstein cow black and white spotches and blotches cause the aggression the short answer is no <laughs> not that I'm being a jerk about this I want to set the record straight so many times people have made the comment that the black is the reason the bees were aggressive the bees were aggressive because of genetics because the queen disposition required whatever and and that had nothing to do with the paint scheme of the hive how do I know this why am I so flippin comfortable in expressing this opinion because I've had that hive for years I've had bees in it never has a colony that's been in that hive been aggressive because the hive had black splotches on it now I wouldn't go out of my way to paint a hive black but to set the record straight 
in my opinion, there is nothing about the paint scheme that made those bees aggressive. It was genetics, plain and simple. And I just had to say that out loud. There's been a number of other comments in there. And it seems evident that people are not watching the video or understanding what was explained. And I feel really goofy that the video is so long. But the first thing I wanted to do is not make a video that was so, so graphic and gore. I wanted it to be a learning video. So I made it long on purpose with a lot of explanation so that you could follow along. But people with short attention span, they're not paying attention. Or, forgive me, maybe they're not beekeepers and they're not grasping the messaging that's going on because it was geared towards an educational video for beekeepers. Some of the messaging that's missing is the precursor activities that were explained in the video. So I'll take a moment here. The first one is, and I spoke about it earlier in the episode, the workforce was split in half. Typically when you have an aggressive hive, one of the first things you want to do is make the hive colony population smaller. This thwarts a little bit of the defensiveness. I made a split of this hive and took half of the population and moved it to another hive. That should have toned down some of the aggression. The second thing that people are missing is a technique to take out aggression, as described earlier, is to requeen a hive. And the video in the chain of events was me going in trying to locate and dispatch the queen so that I could requeen it to replace the genetics and turn the colony around. It was only when I watched the video back and experienced the episode that I realized how super aggressive the bees were and the fact that the aggression provided too much risk and it caused me to take the decision. So many people come in the video comments and say, if you just split that hive and, you know, if they're not grasping what was actually going on there. Okay, I, I don't want to spend too much time deliberating the comments. There were several really good comments. Many of the comments had to do with alternative ways to dispatch the hive. I'm sorry, I'm going to do one more. I used soapy water. One, it was a recommendation and two, it was easily available. I looked up how to get dry ice, which was another very, very common recommendation. If you put dry ice in the hive, it takes away the oxygen, the bees suffocate. I did look at whether you could put a plastic bag over the hive. What I understand about that is it takes a long time for the bees to die, and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be quick and efficient. Not because I am. I wanted to be um, humane. It's bad enough I had to do it, but I didn't want to put them in a plastic bag and have weeks for all the bees to die. I looked up where I could get dry ice and it was a 45 minute ride one way from my house to a dry ice place. I don't know that my local supermarkets have it. Never heard of it. Now, somebody told me recently that it's possible that our ShopRite has it, but I'm going to ask next time. But in the moment, I chose to do... By the way, I didn't want to go to ShopRite because of COVID. <laughs> We were at the time where we were sequestered and trying not to go to the supermarket. We'd been ordering all this stuff online and had stores, but 
Yeah, I said I was going to be brief on this. Anyway, I chose soap. Yes, I know there's a bunch of different ways. There was one really novel way that someone reported, and I really hope to learn a lot from people's comments. person said from Africa that when they deal with this, they light a fire in the hive in the dark, in front of the hive, and they go out and they bang on the hive. The aggressive bees coming to defense will see the fire and fly into the fire, and it kills all the aggressive bees. I thought, damn, that's an interesting... If I... God forbid I ever have it, but if I ever have this again, I wonder if I would try that. Because ultimately what you're trying to do is eliminate the aggressive bees. Now you also have to take care of the drones, which is a key consideration, because you don't want the drones, drones spreading the bad genetics of nastiness out into your environment. Anyway, the feedback from the videos, it's quite interesting, and if you ever want to be entertained, Go look at the video on YouTube and just read through all the comments. It's quite a bit of uh, insightful information shared there. You'll see me replying to some people about certain things. And yeah, there's some trolls in there too, but that comes with the territory. As to the trolls, um, I found this really interesting comic. So social media has made too many of you comfortable with disrespecting people and not getting punched in the mouth for it. <laughs> I really do agree with that sentiment sometimes. As I uh, reflect on that, you know, I made a blog post on my website, bkcorner.org. You can go and read some information there and watch the video too if you don't want to go be searching through YouTube. Roundtable number three, the divine touch of beekeeping. You know, um, COVID's so present in the world right now that it's kind of hard to avoid it. I've tried not to follow the news and look at the doom and gloom. But this one surfaced for us. It was in bee culture, actually. Um, I only found it when trying to do more research on an article I found that they covered it. And I've seen it elsewhere. The discovery out of China indicates that during the height of China's crisis, an observation took place that beekeepers were not impacted by COVID-19. It is stated that in the Hubei province, they conducted a survey and discovered that none of the beekeepers there, and this was 5,115 beekeepers, developed symptoms. Now, furthermore, they went on to look a little deeper at people practicing apotherapy and discovered that the apotherapists and the patients had come into close contact with SARS-CoV-2, which I think is a derivative of COVID, probably not the same COVID-19. But even when they had direct contact with people who were impacted, they did not contract any problems. So as a result, they conclude that beekeepers, they speculate, and they're asking people to look into this further, 
that beekeepers and something to do with possibly beekeeping venom is helping with COVID-19. That's kind of cool. I think that's neat. As I talk around to a lot of people, this is a dynamic that occurs. You're going to get sick. Maybe you have a, a stomach problem one day, don't feel well from eating food. Maybe you develop a rash. Maybe you have a headache. Maybe you have a backache. Who knows? But between the time frame that all this started back, say, December, if that's when you believe it, to now, inevitably you're going to get sick. And every person you talk to seems to indicate that maybe they've had it already. The thing they lack is the test to prove whether they have the antibodies or not. I'm in the same case. I may have possibly had it after coming back from Africa in the December time frame traveling through Dubai. Anyway, that's irrelevant. The thing about it is, wouldn't it be cool if somehow something surfaced that beekeeping was a solution to this? And apparently, that's not uncommon because of known chemicals in bee venom. I think that this is off the top of my head, something to do with beekeeping studies for master beekeeper Myliton. M-Y-E-L-L-I-T-I-N or something. There's some compound in, in beekeeping venom that when you get stung, it has something to do with, I'm doing it from memory, your immune system. And it possibly plays a role in this. So how cool is that? Now on the lighter side of COVID, I found this really funny comic. And it has to be the funniest commentary of all of it. It has a picture of all these people standing in the produce aisle next to a cart and there's a stanchion with one of those rolls of plastic and you pull the plastic off and it says tensions are high in the produce section as no one dares lick their fingers and I just found that really struck my funny bone I thought that was really comical that's all there is fit to print for this episode as far as COVID goes let's call that a rest Round table number four, I'll be quick about this. Just a quick notion to say, youtube.com slash NWNJBA. Uh, quite a few of the things that I've spoken about in the episode, I shot some videos on. If you go out there and look at the last round, the first one is front porch pollen trap. Wanted to collect some pollen for queen rearing and put the trap out. I have an eight frame pollen trap and I take you through that and give you a quick preview. There's a video out there of my lay-ins hive and inspection I did. The top bar nuke, the one that has the false floors in it, shot a video of that and there's some photos embedded that shows you what the top bar false floor looks like. So if you were curious as to what the visual was on that you can watch. George, I got your video out there. I had mentioned in the show about wrapping bees. No, they aren't singing. Wrapping bees off of a frame, meaning hit the frame hard and it with a fast wrap on top of the frame bar and it knocks the bees off. Shot a video quite a while ago on that and then lost track of it. Finally found it, posted it out there. 
I have to say that uh, this morning I tried to repair my camcorder. The focus motor on the camcorder broke and I sent it out one other time to get it repaired but this time it's done. Say a little uh, blessing thank you for that thing. I've had it for seven years pretty pricey device thousand dollars when I paid for it back in 2013 um, shot all the videos pretty much that you see on the YouTube channel with that thing don't have the budget to replace it so I've got to figure out where I can do that I have a new one lined up I guess in the interim I use my GoPro or a couple other things that I have my phone to shoot the videos that we put out there on YouTube but um, yeah, sad, sad to have that. It started acting up and then it just became unusable and ceased to function. I will say the last video that I shot with it recently, I've just done a series on how to do honey production. From taking honey off the hive to bringing it in and uncapping it to spinning it out in an extractor and then the short little thing on bottling it. The video uh, camera broke somewhere in the middle of producing that. I have to put all that together. I have all the footage, and that's what I'm working on right now. It's been a strange year with uh, the inability to meet, so we have another virtual meeting coming up this Thursday. And then the following Thursday, I'm going to do a managed mentoring meeting. So never a lull. For beekeeping activities especially in the springtime okay that's enough on that just said I wanted to mention uh, the videos and let you know they're out there in case you wanted to go take a peek it's been a while since I've done one of these conventional episodes with a bunch of different segments I probably could have split some of this up a little bit more I know I droned on quite a while there about honey fermented garlic but yeah a little bit of a passion on that ah <laughs> uh, what is going on I think I'll wrap up here I'll say that my next objectives are to check my hives and start to prep them for summer holdover and overwintering specifically doing mite treatments, making the splits. And I've been visiting Bob Kloss on an almost daily basis as we are following what's going on with our NICO queen rearing. And today we had a huge breakthrough in how we operate and I'll have to save that for the next episode. But one of the key advantages of trying to do the NICO solution was the ability to pick larvae at the exact age you needed and through serendipity today Bob Kloss picked up one of the cell plastic cell emulation cell and held it up to the light and it was like a beacon shone it was incredible how easy it was I've read books and read articles and watched videos, but Bob made the discovery today, just hold it up to the light and you could see crystal clear what the egg, larva, whatever looks like. So I think in the next episode I'll try and talk more about that. Maybe there'll be a check-in 
after our queen rearing to talk about how it went and what we learned. There were a couple discoveries this time that I thought were really useful. On that note, uh, pretty long episode, I think it's time to close it down. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we can accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll catch you next time on the Beekeeper's Corner.